Hello everyone and welcome back to the long-awaited episode of the Historic Pinstripes, where we discuss the history of the New York Yankees. If you're new to the show, the goal of the Historic Pinstripes show, as always, is to preserve the rich history and tradition of the New York Yankees by sharing my passion for the Yankees and discussing all sorts of topics in Yankees history. And again, my name is Brian and I've been a die-hard Yankees fan since I was about seven years old. Also, I just wanted to first apologize for the long delay between episodes. Um, I have a, however, I have a lot more episodes coming out in the next uh, several weeks. Um, this this week's show, actually, there's actually going to be another episode coming out later in the week. But today's show is on the top five Yankees legends in Yankees history, and um, uh, some of the criteria that I just bought because because there are quite a few legends the Yankees have, but some of the criteria I decided to to put toward making this top five list. One of them is a. Uh, you have to be a homegrown Yankee. So, I mean, yes, Reggie Jackson's a um, he's a Yankee legend. But, I mean, because there, there's there's a lot of Yankee legends. Um, Yankees have been very lucky to have so many great players. Um, so, one, they got to be a homegrown Yankee. They have to have started with the Yankees and finished with the Yankees. and um, uh, Or at least, like, played the majority of their career with the Yankees anyway. Like, played at least 10 seasons or something like that or more. Um and another one is they have to be a Hall of Famer, or, they, or at least just like the best of the best anyway. Without further ado, um, I'm going to get into the top five Yankee legends in Yankees history. Um, the first guy I wanted to mention, of course, is Babe Ruth, um, also known as George Herman Ruth, um, the Sultan of Swat, the Colossus of Clout, um, the King of Swing, and um, quite a few other nicknames. Um, he was born February 6th, 1895 in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, and he, um, obviously I decided to, I've, he's on the list, obviously, um, for good reason. He's, in my opinion, he's probably the best baseball player of all time. Um, I mean, there are a lot of really talented players in baseball, but I, I would say Babe Ruth is definitely the best baseball player. Like there's other players that had more ability, like maybe a Mickey Mantle or Joe DiMaggio, who obviously I'll probably talk about later. Um, however, Babe Ruth, um, he, he just had that, this, just that natural ability for baseball and um like obviously he was a hall of fame pitcher in the beginning of his career he started his career in 1914 with the red sox finished in 1933 of course with the yankees he actually played 15 seasons with the yankees too um he won 89 games with the red sox as a pitcher um and uh that was in six seasons with the red sox he and his um two two of those years 1916 and 1917 he won 23 and 24 games um he also won 18 games in 1915 for the Red Sox, he led the league in ERA in 1916 um, when he won 23 games. He had a 1.75 ERA, which is incredible. And um, you, you know, back then too, they didn't have really any use for relief pitchers. You'd just go the whole game. I think there was um something I heard too. I, I forget what year. It might have been 1918 or 1919. But uh, Babe Ruth actually pitched a complete game, 14 innings though. Um, because obviously it was extra innings, um, which is incredible. That's unheard of, especially nowadays. Um, I mean, I mean, I'm not not to discredit any of the pitchers nowadays, because there's still a lot of really good pitchers nowadays, and even like 20 years ago, it's just the way the game's evolved. Um, the bullpen's just become that much more important. Um, and it, in a way, it's not necessarily bad, but I mean, it's just it's just it's just every game evolves and life evolves. But moving on with Babe Ruth. Um, 1918 and 1919. That's when he actually started uh, playing a lot more um, and getting to bat more because they realized how good he was um, offensively in, uh, with the bat. 
he actually played at least 95 games, um, not um, not not as a pitcher, but as like an outfielder, because um, he was a pitcher and an outfielder. Whenever he didn't pitch, he would play the outfield usually. And he actually played 95 games. Uh, I think it was in the outfield, uh, and um, or at least mostly in the outfield. And he played 130 games in 1919. He made at least 15 starts in both of those seasons as well. Um, he actually made 19 starts in 1918. Um, he threw 133 or more innings in each of those two seasons, which considering he pitched probably about a half a season, um, maybe a little bit more in 1918, um, th- that's that's a lot of innings. But that's just, like I said, it's just part of the evolution of how, how the pitchers are used, and especially with the bullpens and stuff like that. Um, he had over 1,200 innings pitched. He also had a 2.28 ERA Um in his pitching career, at least with the Red Sox anyway. And he also, uh, actually, no, that's that's in his pitching career period because he did start five games with the Yankees, but um, by that time he was he was basically just an outfielder. Uh, and he had actually a 2.28 ERA in his career with 94 wins and 46 losses. So Babe Ruth came to the Yankees in 1920 um, for $120,000. That was for R- Red Sox owner Harry Frazee because he wanted to put on a play called No 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 Net. Um, obviously, it was an extremely unpopular decision and probably one of the stupidest trades of all time, if if, if you will. Um, uh, his first season with the Yankees in 1920, um, he had 54 home runs with the Yankees. Um, obviously, by this time, he was already the Yankees. They they knew how good of a hitter he was, and they that's why they wanted him for his bat. And um, uh, he actually hit more home runs than any other team that season. Um, except for the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, the Phillies actually had 64 home runs. They had two hitters, Cy Williams, who I think was an outfielder, and Iris Musel. Cy Williams hit 15 home runs, Musel hit 14 home runs, so they combined for about 29 home runs together. That just kind of shows you how much more home runs Babe Ruth was hitting than everybody else. Um, 54 home runs back then was unheard of. And actually, Babe Ruth was the first um, the first hitter to ever hit 20, 30, 40 or I think it was at least 30 home runs, 40 home runs, 50 home runs, and obviously 60 home runs as well. Um, so he was the first one to ever do that. He was bigger than life, especially in the 1920s with the Yankees. Um, he really uh, took advantage of every opportunity he got with them. Like he, he seemed to really relish the spotlight, like more than any other player of of that time, especially. Like um, whenever the Yankees needed a big hit, he was there. I mean, of course, there was the 1932 called shot, uh, Charlie Root. Um, was the pitcher for the Cubs, and I guess the Cubs bench was really riding Ruth, and Ruth was giving it back to them, and supposedly Ruth uh, said he called the shot because he was pointing, um, I guess he was pointing toward the center field with two fingers, and um, I guess it's kind of left to the the imagination, but it did seem like he was calling the shot, and obviously he hit the ball exactly where, where it looked like he was pointing to, so that is like one of the most legendary home runs of all time, really. Um, it probably is the most legendary home run of all time. Um, and 1927, of course, was a 60-home run season. He had two three-home run games in a World Series, both against the St. Louis Cardinals, 1926 and 28. You really give um, the Cardinals fits in the World Series. Um, uh, I, and I guess I heard that there was also one game against the White Sox where the White Sox players actually took Babe Ruth out for drinks um, the night before, and I guess because they were, they knew they were playing Babe Ruth, obviously because the Yankees were in Chicago and they wanted to get him drunk. So then I guess the very next game, Babe Ruth 
played still, and he, he, it didn't really phase him, seem to phase him at all. He really played very, very well. And I guess after the game, he even he even uh, jokingly asked, I don't know if it was to the media, or, or I would imagine it must have been, but he said, um, he asked them if they wanted to go out for drinks. So I just thought that was kind of funny. Um, and if, uh, actually, the attendance for the Yankees in 1919 was 619,000. That was at, I believe that was still at the Polo Grounds, because they... The Yankees' first stadium was Hilltop Park, and then they ended up moving to the Polo Grounds. They shared it with the New York Giants. Um, and then in 1920, their attendance, um, obviously because of Babe Ruth, went from 619,000 in 1919 to 1,269,000 in 1920, which is a, which right there in itself shows how popular Babe Ruth was and just how much people just went out just to see him. Uh, Babe Ruth was always there for his fans, of course. Um, obviously, you always hear about how much Ruth was always, uh, he was always signing autographs for kids, and, and I think he would, I, from what I've heard, I guess he's, he was very, he was, he was very giving towards kids, and, uh, helping the, helping kids that who were in hospitals, and stuff like that, and, uh, wanting to hit a home run for someone, but anyways, one thing that Babe Ruth said, that, because Babe Ruth has a lot of pretty good quotes, one thing that he said was, never let the fear of striking out get in your way, I just felt like that's a very empowering quote. His top playing weight in his day was 254 pounds, but his listed playing weight, because he wasn't 254 pounds throughout his entire career. In fact, with the Red Sox, he really uh, was not as big as he was when he finished with the Yankees. Um, but his top playing weight was 254 pounds, and he was listed at about 215 pounds. And actually, his bat, he used a 44-ounce bat. He, had, he um, Back in those days, most not most players, but there were a lot of players that used um, extremely big baseball bats that you would normally not really see a player use um, today. Uh, of course, there are occasional, uh, occasionally there are there are um, some other players who do use um, big baseball bats, but that's just kind of what they prefer. Um, uh, 1930, Babe Ruth signed a two-year deal for $80,000 a year. Um, which uh, and, and, and I guess when he signed that contract, that, that was like the highest paid contract of, um, of all time. And when he signed that contract, uh, they had asked him about it in the media, and Babe Ruth came out with, uh, he said, uh, well, I had a better year than the president. So that just kind of shows how just the, the humor that Babe Ruth had. Um, yeah, Babe Ruth was the highest paid player in 1932 as well. He had uh, made $75,000 that year. Um, which doesn't sound like much today, of of course, but this was a much different era, and uh, baseball was a lot different then, too. Um, and Yankee Stadium was built in 1923. Also, when Yankee Stadium was built, they had a parade for all the players. Um, they actually, uh, the Star Spangled Banner was um, led by uh, John Philip Sousa, and he was the conductor and uh, for the 7th Regiment Band that day. They had a presentation for Babe Ruth, um, and the Yankees went on to beat the Red Sox 4-1. to one. Babe Ruth had a three-run home run. He hit it to right field, and uh, right field actually became, uh, right center field where the bleachers were was called Ruthville, and um, obviously that was because Babe Ruth, that's where he hit the majority of his home runs. Um, so anyways, they won the game 4-1, to one, and he had the big three-run home run um, against the Red Sox as well, um, coincidentally enough. Uh, and... Uh, one of the post-game comments that Babe Ruth had about Yankee Stadium, he said, some ball yard. And I guess the very first person to ever dub the the Yankee Stadium the host that Ruth built 
was Fred Lieb, or Lieb, of the New York Evening Telegram. And in 1923 was also Babe Ruth's only MVP season. He had hit 393 with 41 home runs and 130 RBIs. Um, which it's kind of surprising that because he had a lot of great seasons, of course. I mean, it was Babe Ruth, but he only had one MVP season. I think I would imagine maybe Babe Ruth, um, just just the way, just how good he was. They probably maybe they just expected that every single year, probably. And um, I mean, obviously, most valuable player. It's not always the like just because you're the most valuable player doesn't always mean you're the best player. So sometimes that's part of it too. So a lot of times it depends on the way, uh, way they're voting and stuff. Babe Ruth also had 12 straight RBI, 100 RBI seasons. He led the league six times in that category. Um, he had 11 seasons, which he led the league in walks. And also he was the first to reach, like I said, 30, 40, 50, and 60 home runs. And he also helped the Yankees win four World Series titles in New York. He won seven titles overall, three with the Red Sox. And from age 31 to 36, Babe Ruth, uh, which was uh, 1926 to 1931, Babe Ruth averaged 50 home runs, 155 RBIs, and three had a 354 batting average. And that's basically, those were his average numbers uh, for each of those seasons, um, which is pretty darn good for a guy who was um, in his early early to mid-30s, getting into his late-30s, really. Um, he also had the best career slugging percentage, which was 690. Um, he had the second best on-base percentage of all time, 483, um, second only to Barry Bonds. He averaged only one walk every four at-bats. So Babe Ruth is is definitely he's a legend among legends. Like he he is the the he was like really the first superstar um, that basically any baseball team has ever really had. Uh, I mean it, he really, I mean I guess before that they had there was guys like Ty Cobb and Cy Young, um, or even Walter Johnson who I think had already become a star by then. But they, no, there were no, there had never really been a guy like Babe Ruth. I mean, he really like owned New York, and just the way like the Yankees were from 1900 to 1923, when they were the Highlanders, and then they became the Yankees. Um, well, until they got Ruth, they they really weren't a great team. Um, Ruth really put them on the map. Then of course with Gehrig and and Ruth, it really the Yankees really that's when they really started to take off. But it all started with Babe Ruth, and um. Just the fact that Babe Ruth, and then Babe Ruth was kind of, he was kind of like a showman in a lot of ways. I mean, he was, I guess, because he was the, he was the guy, like he, he was, um, he wasn't afraid to say something. Um, so, I mean, uh, obviously there was the instance I talked about, it was the top five captains episode where Babe Ruth was the captain for five days and he went into the crowd and went after a, a heckler in the, in the crowd. Um, so obviously he wasn't, he definitely wasn't captain material, kind of like a Derek Jeter or something like that. But, uh, one thing about Babe Ruth is that he was definitely not shy at all. And, um, but however, he was a superstar in every sense of the word. And, and he was probably definitely the first superstar in baseball history. Um, and one last quote, I just wanted to leave you with, uh, that Babe Ruth said, I believe he said this in his farewell address in 1948, I think it was in Yankee Stadium. Um, when the Yankees retired his number, and I think they, um, uh, that's when they gave him his monument to, and, and they put it in center field, I believe. Um, Babe Ruth said, the only real game I think in the world is baseball. So the next guy I wanted to mention is Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle, he's known as the Commerce Comet and the Mick. Um, Mickey Mantle's probably, in my opinion, probably one of the most famous Yankees as well, of course. They're, they all, all these guys really are. 
Mickey Mantle is um he, he was a guy that's probably most the most popular Yankee legend. I mean, they're all really popular, uh, uh, but like Mantle just had that like the human quality about him. It was just very charismatic, um, but in kind of like a just kind of like a natural way, you know, if that makes sense. But anyways, Mickey Mantle, of course, played 18 seasons with the Yankees. He had 2,461 games played, 8,102 at-bats. And that's kind of, that says a lot about Mickey Mantle because he was hurt a lot throughout his career, but yet he still went out there and played as much as he could. Um, obviously, he also had a, a very uh, well-known drinking problem. Mickey was a guy that wanted to play no matter what. Um, and even though he had his problems, he still, um, he still, he always wanted to help the Yankees win. Um, and that was, he knew that was the goal. Um, so Mickey was definitely a team player and he's probably one of the most well liked, uh, um, by any of his teammates or, and like, he's one of the most well liked Yankee teammates of all time, really probably. And that's kind of for a guy who's a, who's a legend, um, that kind of says a lot about Mickey Mano. And it's really a shame that he wasn't able to take it, take care of himself because he could have been. He could have been maybe the best of all time. Um, most people say that Willie Mays is the best um, best player in in uh, baseball history, and I do kind of I kind of agree with that. But however, I feel like if Mickey Mantle was able to take care of himself, he could have been the best player in baseball history. But Ruth, I think, was the best baseball player of all time. Willie Mays was the best baseball athlete of all time, uh, and um, even more, I think Mickey Mantle, if it wasn't for the injuries and all the problems he had. Maybe he could have been the best athlete of, of all time. But, I mean, this that's all in the past, of course. Um, he also hit 536 home runs in his career. He had 1,733 walks in his career, 2,415 hits. Um, Mickey Mantle, was, he was scouted by Tom Greenway uh, as a shortstop. He signed for a $1,150 bonus, which I think is kind of, just, just kind of interesting just to see how much these players made back then. It was a different day and age in baseball. He, um, he also only made $140 a month as well. Of course, like I said, it's a totally different day and age in baseball back then. And Mickey and his dad actually signed the contract. They worked on the contract with the scout, Tom Greenway, uh, who was a scout with the Yankees back then. Um, uh, Mutt was uh, Mickey's dad, Mutt Mantle. And during a rain delay, they, were, they, went, to, uh, they, w- they went to Tom Greenway's 1947 Oldsmobile. During the rain delay, they worked out the contract right there in the car during the rain delay. Um, and he actually, Mickey ended up going on to play two minor league seasons as a shortstop with the Yankees. He made 102 errors his first season with the Yankees in 1949. And it seems like the first year in the minor leagues for any player, really, especially someone as good as Mickey Mantle making 102 errors. Um, I mean, obviously, probably shortstop wasn't his, the, the position, shortstop wasn't the position that was gonna was going to be uh, where, they, where they ended up wanting him. But um, but it just kind of shows you how hard it is to play in professional baseball. Um, so, uh, however, in 1949, even though he did make 102 errors, um, he was the shortstop as well. He put he hit 317 that year. Um, so he was still um still always really a great hitter. And also the next year in 1950, he had a 383 batting average, 26 home runs, and 136 RBIs. And also, he ran from home plate to first base in 3.1 seconds. Uh, again, uh, Mickey Mantle, he just had a rare combination of power and speed that really nobody else had really ever seen before. Um, and spring training, 1951, that was his first spring training really with the Yankees. 
Casey Stengel decided to move him, of course, to center field from shortstop because he really wasn't a great shortstop. Um, Casey Stengel actually said about Mickey Mantle, he said he should lead the league in everything. With his combination of power and speed, he should win the Triple Crown every year. In fact, he should do anything he wants to, which is kind of um, interesting, uh, interesting quote, and it sounds just like how something Casey Stengel would say. Um, and also, but it's it's very true though because because it just shows you how talented Mickey Mantle was that his manager would say that he should win the triple bat triple the triple batting crown every single year, um, and he did end up going on to win the triple crown of course in 1956. But he made his major league debut April 17th 1951, and he played right field of course. Um, he had a he had some difficulty hitting though for the first time ever in his baseball career. Um, he, he was sent down to AAA in Kansas City that year, and that's where he really started to struggle ever for the first time in baseball. And he actually thought about quitting, I guess, um, which I this is actually kind of public, but I, I just wanted to mention it. Um, he actually talked to his dad after that, Mutt Mantle, again. And uh, his dad, his, uh, when he talked to his dad and told him he was thinking about quitting, his dad told him, I thought I raised a ball player, but you're nothing but a coward and a quitter. And as uh, his dad, Mutt Mantle, started packing Mickey's bags, Mickey changed his mind, and, of course, the rest is history. And Mickey went on to break out of his slump the very next game. He, I guess he played 40 games in the minors, and uh, he had 50 RBIs. Um, so he was back with the Yankees that very same year in 1951, helped the Yankees to the World Series. However, in Game 2 of the 1951 World Series, that's where he got hurt. They were playing the New York Giants in 1951 in the World Series, Willie Mays hit a fly ball to right field, um, and I guess uh, Joe D called off Mickey Mantle, so he took the ball, uh, caught it. However, uh, Mickey Mantle, I guess he didn't see one of the uh, sprinkler head coverings in the outfield, and his spike caught it, and he ended up tearing his right knee. And however, I guess that also was a big injury. It really kind of, it really kind of hampered his career. The very next year, he ended up moving to center field, in in 1952, and it, like the early part of his career, it really did not or really most of his career, um, like even though he did have to deal with a lot of injuries and I'm sure that some lingering, a lot of lingering effects from that that injury with the knee, um, he still put up some insane numbers with the Yankees. And in 10 seasons, Mickey Mantle had 100 or more walks. Um, he also, in nine straight seasons, he had 100 or more runs scored as well. He led the league in home runs and slugging percentage in four straight seasons. Mickey Mantle had a 300 or more batting average in 10 seasons. He had three MVP awards, 1956, 1957, and 1962. Of course, 56 was his triple crown year. Um, he went to 20 All-Star games. And some of those All-Star appearances, uh, um, they at that time, they in the 50s and 60s, I believe. I'm not sure about before that, but they used to... Um, they used to actually have two All-Star games. He had more career runs scored than runs batted in in his career, which is extremely rare for power hitters. Um, again, Mickey was very different than most power hitters because he had a ton of speed. I did want to uh, kind of concentrate on Mickey's power for a second, though. Some of the longest home runs that he had, um, April 17th, 1953 versus the Washington Senators at Griffith Stadium, which was the Washington Senators' um, home park at, at the time. Um, from the right side of the plate, Mickey Mano batted against the left-handed pitcher Chuck Stobbs, and he hit a ball that cleared the 60-foot-high scoreboard in left center, went 565 feet. That was in Washington. 
September 10th, 1960 versus the Detroit Tigers at Briggs Stadium. Um, from the right side of the plate, Mickey Mickey batted, and uh, he hit the ball off of uh, Paul Foytak. Um, and uh, Paul, Paul Foytak was a left-handed pitcher, if you're not familiar with him. Um, uh, Mickey cleared the right field roof of Briggs Stadium. And the ball went 560 feet, and it landed across um, Trumbull Street, which is obviously where uh, where Briggs, Briggs Stadium was. Um, September 18, 1956, versus the Chicago White Sox in Comiskey Park, the old Comiskey Park. Um, obviously, there is no Comiskey Park now. I think it's called... Or they've had a few name changes. However, uh, September 18th, 1956, against the White Sox, Mickey Mantle batted right-handed um, off a left-handed pitcher, Billy Pierce. And he, he had a ball that cleared the left field roof. And it, that ball went 550 feet. And then May 30th, 1956, versus the Washington Senators in Yankee Stadium, Mickey Mantle batted left-handed against right-handed pitcher Pedro Ramos. He had a he hit it into the upper deck facade in right field on a downward arc. So the ball had to go all the way up, and it, it was coming down, and that's when it hit the arc. So it's, that's kind of incredible just how high he's able. he was able to hit the ball. Um, and I guess they said that even a pop-up from Mickey Mano, it seemed to go even higher than a regular major league pop-up, which already is higher than most pop-ups, of course, because they're major leaguers. Um so that uh, just to, and I don't I don't think anyone else has ever I I'm pretty sure there's no one else that's ever hit the facade and Mickey Mickey Mantle actually ended up doing it twice which leads me to another one that I want to mention May twenty second nineteen sixty three versus the Kansas City Athletics in Yankee Stadium Mickey batted left handed um he he uh, the pitcher was right handed pitcher Bill Fisher for the Kansas City A's he had hit it into the upper deck facade again in right field. Um, went 535 feet, and when when the ball hit the facade on this one, the ball was still rising, so it, it would have clearly gone out of Yankee Stadium. Um, so it's it's just it's it's just fascinating the power that Mickey Mantle had. Um, so I just, there's just some things I wanted to mention about Mickey because it definitely adds to Mickey's legend and shows you how good Mickey was. And even in the postseason, I, Mickey Mantle I think he had like 15 home runs in his postseason career. Mickey was definitely a clutch hitter, and um, he was he was always always seemed to be ready in the biggest moments, and uh, he was clutch. So, um, and also he was a great defensive center fielder uh, as well, which is which is interesting as well because of, like um, all the injuries that he had to overcome. One quote I just wanted to leave you with on Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle said, "I had a habit of running the bases with my head down. I figured the pitcher felt bad enough without me showing him up." Rounding the bases. So now let's go on to Joe DiMaggio. Joe and Joe, or the Yankee Clipper, also known as Joe D. Um, Joe DiMaggio, of course, was the predecessor. He was the guy before Mickey. Um, Joe D. was born November 25th, 1914, the same year that Babe Ruth actually started his career with the Red Sox. Um, uh, Joe D. was born in Martinez, California. His father was a crab fisherman, and he was from Sicily, Italy, before he came ended up coming over to America. Joe D. ended up learning how to play the game of baseball because I guess he, he used to use a broken oar as a baseball bat, and he used to hit balls from a fishing boat, and that's how he learned how to how to play baseball. Um, his nickname as a kid was Long Legs, but they would say Long Legs in Italian. Um, 
and uh, Joe D actually started in the Pacific Coast League, which was the second best league at that time. Um, and that was in 1933. He played for the San Francisco Seals, um, which was basically his hometown team, I guess. Um, they were the well, they were the representative team of the Pacific Coast League in California. He had safely actually in that league that year in 1933 in 61 straight games, um, which kind of leads to the 56 game hit, hitting streak that he had um, in the major leagues. Of course, in 1941. Um, so that just shows you how good he was and just just what kind of player he really he really was. Like that, like he he was always a very consistent hitter um and he did have a lot of power too and in his second season with the san francisco seals he played shortstop and he batted 341 um however he did injure his knee and actually uh i believe it was that year the, uh there were some yankee scouts that had that, that had been there i guess they ended up playing down dimaggio's injury to the then general manager ed barrow and the scouts joe divine and bill essek scouted dimaggio they didn't want the GM or the owner of the Yankees at that time to not sign DiMaggio because of the injury. Um, and it's a good thing they did listen to Divine and Essek. And uh, uh, Jordi ended up going on to play one more season with the San Francisco Seals. However, I think the Yankees did sign him before they before they played that season, but I think DiMaggio had already agreed to play with the Seals, so he wanted to play one more season with them. Which kind of tells you a lot about DiMaggio because DiMaggio was a very prideful guy, and obviously, if he want, if he was committed to doing something, he was going to do it. Um, but maybe there were other reasons too why he wanted to play that one more season in San Fran. Um, uh, uh, that year, though, he had 398, he had 270 hits, and he had 154 RBIs. Um, George Weiss, the owner of the Yankees, then said, um, "Getting him was the greatest thing I ever did for the Yankees." Um, which is obviously a, a huge compliment uh, for any player. In 1936, in spring training, Joe DiMaggio went on a cross-country trek from California with uh, Yankee teammates Tony Lazzari and Frank Rossetti. Um, it took three days for them. They were carpooling. And I guess the only time Joe DiMaggio even spoke was to Tony Lazzari, who asked uh, Joe DiMaggio, you know, he asked him if he had wanted to drive because I guess Lazzari was driving the whole the whole time, so... Um, but I guess the only thing Joe DiMaggio said was, I don't drive the whole time um, on that three-day three, three day carpool adventure, I guess, if you will. Um, and uh, um, so I guess that just kind of tells you a lot of, a little bit more about Joe DiMaggio. Um, he was a very quiet guy, um, very private. And I guess when Tony Lazzari, Frank Rossetti, and um, Joe DiMaggio, they were carpooling together, when they got to spring training, uh, Red Ruffing, um, I guess he was, he, Red Ruffing was a, outstanding pitcher with the New York Yankees in the 1930s. Uh, when he met Joe DiMaggio in spring training that year, he said to Joe DiMaggio, so you're the great DiMaggio, which is pretty interesting considering um, Joe DiMaggio is this rookie. He hadn't even played a major league game, and uh, they already knew uh, a lot about him. Obviously, but the Pacific Coast League, like I said, I guess it was the second best league at that time. So uh, he had probably gotten, I'm sure he had gotten a lot of public attention from that. The first game that Joe DiMaggio played at Yankee Stadium was that same year against the St. Louis Browns. I believe it was like in May or so because I think he was recovering from an injury. However, he faced the St. Louis Browns in his MLB debut, and the Yankees won the game 14-5. to His first at-bat, he got on base on a fielder's choice um, to third base. He went to second base on an error, 
Um, it was a fielder's choice, so he went on to second on an error. Runner scored. Crosetti actually scored because Crosetti was on third base when he got the fielder's choice. And um, so that was his first at-bat as a Yankee. Um, his second at-bat, uh, that was when he got his first actual hit, got a single to center field. And um, he was 3-for-6 in the game. He had a triple, an RBI, and he batted third in front of Lou Gehrig, of course. And um, Red Rolf was the guy who batted in front of um, Joe DiMaggio. And, of course, the leadoff hitter was the shortstop, Frank Crosetti, or otherwise known as the Crow. They called him because Crosetti. Um, so his rookie season, as a, as a whole, uh, 1936, he played 138 games that season. 29 home runs, had 125 RBIs, and he only struck out 39 times that season, which is a career high. So it, the most he ever struck out in one season was 39 times, which is incredible, um, especially considering nowadays and how the game has changed so much. It's, it's more of a, like a the, like there's a lot more power in today's game. Um it, but it's, it's just it just kind of it just shows you how great Joe DiMaggio was at just making contact because um, hitting the game like watching baseball it's it's sometimes you sometimes we forget as fans just how hard it is to hit a baseball hit a ninety five mile per hour fastball or whatever um, it's not easy so anyways um, Joe DiMaggio helped the Yankees in his uh, first year to the their first World Series of four straight World Series titles from 1936 to 1939. Um, uh, the, and actually in that span, they only lost three games um, combined of all in all four of those series, which is which is pretty remarkable. Um, Joe McCarthy called Joe DiMaggio a complete player, um, which he was. Obviously, he was a five-tool five player, what you would call a five-tool player now. Um, he never liked making mistakes. Like I said, he was a very prideful a very prideful guy, and he was very aware of how he was portrayed in public. Um, he had a lot of pride. He was disciplined and calm, um, which probably helped him in New York and, and playing in some very, very big games. He was very introverted. I guess they even said that he led the major leagues in room service, which is kind of funny at the same time. But um, this just says a lot about DiMaggio, and it just shows you how introverted he was. Um, the... Uh, the only people to ever see DiMaggio struggle, they say, I guess, was his teammates. Um, I guess DiMaggio didn't like to show any injuries to anybody, but obviously his teammates, you know, he was in, his, in the same clubhouse as them, so, you know, they were all going through going through the same things he was going through, and um, from everything I heard, too, I guess he, DiMaggio was a great, great teammate. Seems like all his teammates loved him. Um, 1941, like I mentioned before, that was the year of his 56-game hitting streak. Of course, he had the 61-game hitting streak in the Pacific Coast League, but this is the major leagues too. So, um, 41, he was the MVP. He just beat out Ted Williams, who hit 406 that year as well. He also had a great year. But Joe DiMaggio, uh, he hit 351 that year and had 125 RBIs and 30 home runs, and he only struck out 13 times that year, which is incredible. Um, he also missed three seasons in his prime due to World War II. Um, uh, 1949, Joe DiMaggio Day, while he was still playing. And I don't think that there was ever another player who was still playing that ever had their own day. Like even Lou Gehrig, when he when Lou Gehrig made his, his uh, speech, it was, you know, that was the day he basically, I, he had kind of already retired before that, but he was just kind of announcing it. This, uh, Joe DiMaggio actually had, Joe DiMaggio Day before he was even retired. 
Um, but that's when he also said this famous quote, I'd like to thank the good Lord for making me a Yankee. And that's actually, of course, that's you see that sign in the Yankee clubhouse going down to the field. Is that, well, actually, it's in the tunnel going from the clubhouse to the field, I believe. I, I, at least it used to be in the old stadium. I'm not sure if they still do. I would imagine they might. And um, like Derek Jeter and a lot of the players would hit it as they're going out to the field. Um, however, that that's so that's when he had said that. Um, Joe DiMaggio won three MVPs in his career, two batting titles. Um, he, he had been to the All-Star game in every single season of his career. Um, another thing about DiMaggio was he was a right-handed hitter, of course. Um, uh, he had hit 361 home runs in his career, and he struck out 369 times, which is incredible that he almost hit as many home runs as he struck out in his entire career. Played about 13 seasons or so, and he hit 325 in his career as well in those 13 seasons or, or so, roughly. Um, he had 118 RBIs average about, uh, per season. He had one home run every 18.9 at-bats. Um, he was a home run leader in 1937 and 1948, so in the in the beginning of his career and at the end of his career. And again, like I was saying about him being a right-handed hitter, he only had 360 home runs, which is still a lot of home runs. However, considering how big Yankee Stadium was, Left field in, in the old Yankee Stadium at the or Yankee Stadium dimensions at that time in left field, it started 301 feet down the line in left field, which doesn't seem that bad for a major league ballpark. But then it goes out to 402 feet, which goes out to 457 feet, which used to be 490 feet, but they had changed that in th 1936, his rookie year. So it was 457 feet, and then it went out to, for the most of his career anyway, to 461 feet which again changed from 487, but it was 461 feet for most of his career. And then uh, the center field, which was, I believe, even deeper than that. Um, and uh, so left center field going out to like 457, 461 feet that, uh, that, that they actually put later ended up putting some mo monuments out there because it was so deep. And they actually called that Death Valley in uh, left center field in Yankee Stadium, which I think they still did up until like the 70s or so. But with the new stadium being, um, and don't get me wrong, the new stadium's great. Um, but with the new stadium, the way that the the jet stream is and right and right field is just it plays as more of a hitter's park. So I guess you don't really hear people call it left center field Death Valley anymore, just because of how the stadium plays. Joe DiMaggio, uh, he actually had more road home runs than another Hall of Famer, Mel Ott, who actually hit 511. Um, career home runs, but Joe DiMaggio had more road home runs than him, um, and DiMaggio only had 361 home runs in his career. DiMaggio had 213 home runs on the road, 148 at home, so he lost a lot of home runs still um, because, you know, he was a right-handed hitter. Imagine if Joe DiMaggio played with how the new stadium is. I would imagine that Joe DiMaggio would probably have even more home runs, but it's just it just shows you how great of a hitter he was even though he had to overcome the dimensions of Yankee Stadium and they did bring bring in the fences and I'm sure that was a big part of it because he was a right-handed hitter and uh, Lou Gehrig of course and Babe Ruth before him were lefties so I'm sure that's part of the reason why they did that but at the same time though too Joe DiMaggio was a great center fielder and um, the way he they, they said he was probably one of the most graceful center fielders uh, that the Yankees ever had really I, I guess the way he he would just glide out there. Um, so Joe DiMaggio was just one of the best defensive center fielders of all time. Led the league in slugging percentage in 1937 
1950, again, beginning and end of his career. Um, he retired in 1951 at age 36. I guess management wanted him to come back, but he didn't want to come back, I guess, because, you know, he just had, he was in too much pain and he had really kind of had too much pride to come back because he didn't want to, like, he didn't want people to see him struggle. Eddie Lopat had said that Joe D meant way more than his statistics showed. Um, and uh, he also said that uh, Joe DiMaggio was a real leader and he was the best, which is like the ultimate compliment for any player um, to get that kind of compliment from your from your from one of your teammates. Um, Joe DiMaggio, upon retiring, said, I can no longer produce for my club, my my manager, my teammates and my fans. It has become a chore for me to play. When, base, when baseball's no longer fun, it's no longer a game. And the next player I wanted to mention was Lou Gehrig, otherwise known as the Iron Horse, of course. Uh, Lou Gehrig was born June 19th in 1903 in New York. Um, he was actually only uh, the only of four siblings to survive infancy. Of course, 1903, that was a, a much different era. And Lou Gehrig was also known as the Babe Ruth of the schoolyards. Um, when he was playing in high school, I believe that he got that nickname after playing in a national championship game at Wrigley Field, um, and he had a ninth inning grand slam to right field. So he was already. It's kind of interesting that he ended up going on to play with Babe Ruth, and then after that, he ended up going on to uh, to to go to Columbia University. He was uh, he ended up getting scouted by a scout named Paul Critchell. Saw Lou Gehrig in a game for, versus Rutgers. Um, of course, Gehrig was playing for Columbia University, and he was—I guess—he was not there for Lou Gehrig. But Gehrig ended up hitting two balls a mile, and I guess Paul Critchell said that Lou Gehrig was a kid who could not miss. Um, of course, Lou Gehrig ended up going on to sign with the Yankees. He signed a $1,500 signing bonus with them, June 1st, 1925. That's when he first came into a game with the Yankees. He pitched pitch hit for Pee Wee Winninger. Um, who was a shortstop for the Yankees, and he ended up going in to play the field, of course, at, at first base, though, for Wally Pip, and that's when he basically began his Ironman streak. Um, but, of course, the Ironman streak really started the next game um, when he started, um, and Wally Pip didn't, because Wally Pip was struggling, and they had decided to put this young kid, Lou Gehrig, in the next game because uh, that's when he got his first shot. And another interesting note I did want to mention about the guy that Lou Gehrig pitch hit for in um, his first, really his first, his MLB debut, uh, Pee Wee Weninger, who was a shortstop, he ended up ending the previous streak holder, Everett Scott, who actually was a captain of the Yankees, but Everett Scott was the previous record holder of the Ironman streak, which was 1,307 games in a row, and of course, Gehrig's was 2,130 games in a row, but it really started when he pitched it for Pee Wee Weninger, so it's just kind of full circle. But I guess there was one time in Lou Gehrig's streak, he did have an attack of lumbargo in 1934, and um, he they they actually started Lou Gehrig. Um, I think they ended up starting him at, at they started him at shortstop or something like that. But he didn't play the field because back then you didn't have to play five innings. So he, he came up in the first inning, got a base hit, and then they took him out. And uh, but it still counted though. Um, but, but however, the streak ended up ending May 2nd, 1939. ALS really, um, Lou Gehrig's disease, it really took a lot out of Lou Gehrig. And um, in a lot of ways, like Lou Gehrig, he he probably could have ended up breaking Babe Ruth's home run record, possibly. Um, it would have been interesting. It's kind of too bad how things ended ended for him, of course. In a lot of ways, it just kind of shows you how, just how great Lou Gehrig was 
and just how how much he meant to Yankee fans and his Yankee, Yankee teammates as well. Um, like he really was the pride of the Yankees. Uh, but in 1927, that's when he won his first MVP award. Uh, it was his second full season in the big leagues. He hit 373 that year, had 47 home runs, 173 RBIs, and he also had a 220 on base plus slugging adjusted that year, which is um, which is which is phenomenal. Um, uh, uh, and after 1927, Lou Gehrig struck out no more than 75 times in a season. Um, of course, he was more of a power hitter than DiMaggio was as well. So sometimes as a power hitter, you're going to strike out a little bit more. Um, but Gehrig, of course, with the 373 batting average, he, he hit 300 a lot in his career. I mean, he was, he was pretty consistent for a power hitter. Um, 1938 was his last full season in his career, um, and that was at age 35. Lou Gehrig led the league in home runs three times in his career, led the league in RBIs five times in his career, and he led the league in batting average once, which was 1934, the the year that he won the Triple Crown, um, which actually coincidentally, um, 1934, even though he did win the Triple Crown, he didn't get the MVP award. I think it was like fifth or sixth in the MVP um, in the running for most valuable player. I think Mickey Cochran ended up winning that award. Um, however, um, sometimes... Like I said, it's most valuable player, so it's not always the best player. I still think he probably should have won the MVP, but, I mean, that's a long time ago. Um, and actually, Lou Gehrig was the first Yankee to ever win a Triple Crown. Um, and in that year, Gehrig had hit 49 home runs. He had 166 RBIs, had hit 363 um, for a batting average of 363, and he had a 207 on-base plus slugging adjusted. Uh, Gehrig had nine seasons of 140 or more RBIs, eight seasons above 150 RBIs in a single season, and he had two seasons toward the end of his career in 1936 and 1937 that he had uh, of uh, with uh, 150 or more RBIs, which um, just shows you how great he was because that's when um, I think that I think by that time he had already started to obviously feel the effects of ALS. Um, even though they didn't, he didn't know that's what it was at that time. However, he also had 23 grand slams, which was a record, I believe. Um, I think it was Manny Ramirez that had broken it, and there might have been somebody else too. Uh, but he had 23 grand slams, which was the most amount of grand slams for a really long time. That was a major league record. June 3rd, 1932, Lou Gehrig was the first player to hit four home runs in one game. Gehrig played 17 seasons, and he had 493 career home runs. Um, he had 73 three-run home runs, 166 two-run home runs in his career, and he also averaged one home run every 16.2 at-bats. Eric also played in seven World Series, and the Yankees won six of those World Series. Um, and uh, I, I believe Gehrig's estimated salary, um, the highest his salary ever was, estimated anyway, with his World Series earnings was $400,000. Again, that's just, just kind of interesting, especially for players of uh, of the past it's just kind of interesting to me to see how how much they made in comparison um but anyways it was a different day and age back then um may 2nd 1939 that's when the iron man streak ended uh the, lou gehrig he brought out the lineup card for joe mccarthy he actually pulled himself out of the lineup uh, it was it was his decision to come out because he didn't want to embarrass himself kind of like dimaggio in a way um, and DiMaggio, uh, ironically enough, was obviously on that team. And uh, so that's basically when his career ended. 
Um, and July 19th, 1939, that's when Bugard was officially diagnosed with um, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, otherwise known as ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, December 1939, the Hall of Fame decided to waive the five-year waiting period just for Lou Gehrig, and they inducted him right into the Hall of Fame. July 4th, 1939, that's when Lou Gehrig got to deliver his um, farewell speech, or luckiest man speech, if you will, to Yankee fans and his teammates and everyone, and I guess Babe Ruth was there. Um, and actually, it was kind of interesting to me because many years after, Mickey Mantle, when Mickey Mantle had Mickey Mantle Day, I think it was 1969 for Mickey Mantle Day, um, Mickey Mantle had said that he wondered how a man who knew he was going to die could say he was the luckiest man in the world. And then he said that, he went on to say that he, then he knew how, then he thought he knew how Lou Gehrig felt. And of course, part of that was because Mickey Mantle, um, his his grandfather and his dad, I believe, had polio. I believe it was, and Mickey Mantle always thought he was going to get it, and he was going to have he was going to die young, just like his father and his grandfather. But also, it kind of just shows the the humanness of Mickey Mantle, and I think that's a lot of why fans really related to Mantle, um, because Mantle just had that like even though Mantle was great, he was a great baseball player, and obviously he knew it because he was he was really really talented, but. He just, he never really could, he never, like, Lou Gehrig, obviously, he knew, obviously, he was good as well, because, you know, obviously, he was really talented, but I think the difference is Lou Gehrig just kind of had, a, had like, like he just, he just kind of knew how to present himself, whereas Mickey just had that way about him that, that people just related to, um, but anyways, I just thought that was an interesting quote by Mantle, um, uh, Lou Gehrig ended up passing away 16 years to the day that he took over as the starting first baseman for Wally Pipp in 1925. Um, July 4th, 1941, the Yankees dedicated a monument in center field to uh, Lou Gehrig. Actually, he got his monument before Babe Ruth's monument went out there, which I think was in 1948, I believe, on Babe Ruth's day. Um, uh, so anyways, uh, and another thing I wanted to mention about Lou Gehrig, of course, was the film they ended up making, The Pride of the Yankees, which was directed by Sam Wood um, and uh, starring Gary Cooper, Teresa Wright, and Walter Brennan, which is a great film. And um, it's just something I wanted to mention because that is a great film um, for really any Yankee fan. But it just says uh, the way they portrayed it, they did a really good job. Um, and Lou Gehrig really was the pride of the Yankees. And uh, just, just the way how on Lou Gehrig Day, his entire the entire team I guess was out there and that that um just the way the fans were and the teammates were it just shows you how beloved that Lou Gehrig was and the only other guy I can really think that I mean I mean you could probably say the same of all the Yankee legends really Mickey Mantle Joe DiMaggio even but another guy is uh Derek Jeter and Yogi Berra too but Derek Jeter as well though was Lou Gehrig Jeter seems like he's kind of a throwback to Lou Gehrig. Yogi Berra was born May 12th, 1925. Yogi Berra was actually, he was only 5'7", 185 pounds. Grew up in St. Louis on a, uh, the area of St. Louis was called the hill that he grew up on. Um, uh, one th interesting thing about Yogi Berra, he was making TV commercials 40 years after his, his retirement, which just shows you how, how, how like beloved Yogi Berra was and how, just how, just how, how much people loved him and, uh, Yogi Berra was, he was actually quoted by presidents of the United States, I believe 
uh, President Barack Obama and uh, former President George W. Bush as well um, quoted Yogi Berra. Um, Yogi Berra, actually, he had a childhood friend that also, I think he played a little bit of Major League Baseball, but his childhood friend, Joe Garagiola, ended up becoming a general manager, I think, of the Diamondbacks, I believe, and he was also a broadcaster for many, many years. And I, he did play, I think he played at least in the minor leagues. I'm pretty sure he played in the major leagues as well. But anyways, Joe Garagiola and Yogi, they were childhood, childhood friends. They ended up trying out for the St. Louis Cardinals when they got older. And um, I, Joe Garagiola actually made the team for the St. Louis Cardinals. The Cardinals were going to pay him uh, a, a $500 signing bonus. And uh, I guess they did not want to give Yogi Berra the same amount of money. They didn't really feel like Yogi Berra. Um, was good enough to get $500, a $500 bonus. The Cardinals GM at the time was Branch Rickey, and he ended up saying that Yogi would not make it out of AAA if he ever if he ever got signed by somebody. So, of course, Branch Rickey was, got it wrong, and Yogi, of course, ended up signing with the New York Yankees for $500, uh, $500 bonus in 1943, and he started in Nor- Norfolk, Virginia for the Yankee Farm team um, I believe it must have been like single A or something like that. Um, he actually made 16 errors at catcher in his first year of his professional career, but he showed a lot of promise as a hitter, I guess. And the next year, he went into the Navy, um, and he, I guess he was training as a as a gunner. Um, obviously, he was in World War II, and uh, he actually was in the D-Day invasion of Normandy as well. He fought in that. Uh, he helped in the fighting of that for 15 straight days. He played on the Navy baseball team um, in Connecticut. And he actually impressed, because uh, they played an exhibition game against the New York Giants, and he impressed the New York Giants so much with his hitting in that exhibition game that the New York Giants wanted to offer the Yankees $50,000 just for Yogi Berra's contract. And, of course, Jim, the general manager, Larry McPhail, at that time refused because, of course, the New York Giants – and the New York Yankees, all the New York teams in, in the area at that time, that was the Dodgers, Yankees, and Giants. Um, but the Yankees, that, that was something that they were they weren't going to, they didn't want to give up one of their young guys. Even though Larry McPhail probably didn't know much about Yogi because Yogi was just he was just a young player. He he hadn't he hadn't made it to the big leagues yet. But it's obviously a great thing that Larry McPhail did not take that deal. And after being discharged, Yogi Berra ended up going on to play for the Newark Bears. Um, and then after that, of course, he ended up playing his first season with the Yankees. And I guess in his first season, Stengel, um, he, he had wanted Bill Dickey, who was Bill Dickey was in his last season. He was also a catcher, a great Yankee catcher as well. Um, and he wanted Bill Dickey, who was a great known, very much known for his defense. But he was a good, he was very consistent. But Barra was, he, he was a good hitter. He just his defense wasn't that great. So they wanted Bill Dickey to work with Yogi Berra and and. Um, I guess Stengel said that that Yogi had the skills to be great, but they there were a lot of things that he needed to work on. And Bill Dickey was he really worked a lot with Yogi Berra, and it um, really made Yogi Berra a, a much better catcher. And Yogi became one of the best, really became one of the best catchers of all time in baseball history, really. Um, but um, a lot of that is because of Bill Dickey. Bill Dickey ended up, I think, he ended up being a coach for many many years as well. And one quote that I just wanted to mention uh, that Bill Dickey said about Yogi Berra um, and helping him that season, uh, like Casey Stengel had asked him to, uh, Bill Dickey had said, Right now, Yogi does about everything wrong, but Casey warned me about that. The main thing is he has speed, agility behind the plate, and a strong enough arm. 
He just needs to be taught to throw properly. I know he can hit. I'd say Barra has the makings of a good catcher. I won't say great, but certainly a good one. And that was Bill Dickey. Um, of course, Bill Dickey became a mentor for Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra, and I think Yogi never really, he never forget that because I, I, he, uh, I think in interviews a lot he would, he would if you go back and look at a lot of his interviews he would talk about. Bill Dickey a lot. Bill Dickey, of course, ended up becoming a coach for the Yankees for many years as well. I don't think he ever became a manager, uh, at least not for the Yankees anyway, but I'm not positive if he ever went on to another team to manage. Um, however, in Yogi's second season, he ended up going on to play 83 games. He had played seven seven games the year before that, um, but he played 83 games in his second season with the Yankees, 293 at-bats, um, 11 home runs, 54 RBIs, and he had hit 280. Um Yogi, of course, was more of a power hitter as well throughout his career, but 280 is not bad at all. Um, in his third season with the Yankees, he played even more games. That's where he started playing 116 games a season until like nine, well into the 1960s. Yogi Berra also driving in runs, like I said, driving in runs was his biggest strength, um, more so than hitting for average. But he, he usually, his career batting average of 285 throughout his entire career, he played 19 seasons for 1946. 1965. Of course, 1964, he didn't play at all. He was he, but he was the manager of the Yankees, but I guess he tried to make a comeback. He only played four games with the Mets in 65. So, I mean, it's only four games. But considering he played like, so I guess he, in total, he kind of played like 17 seasons. But, I mean, to hit 285 in a 17-season career, that's that's really pretty darn good. And um, in a lot of ways, maybe those four games might have made his average go down a little bit but I mean maybe not enough to it might not have been enough to even make his average go down that much. Yogi Berra went on to help the Yankees win 10 World Series titles in his in his tenure. I guess he actually I believe he's the um he, he's he's won the most World Series titles of any player in uh, baseball history. Um, he uh, he helped the Yankees to to win 14 pennants as well so they went to 14 World Series and they won 10 of them which is a great percentage of course. Um Yogi Berra was a three-time MVP and won his first MVP award in 1951. Then he won back-to-back from 1954 and 1955 MVP awards. Um, 15 straight All-Star games for Yogi Berra. Casey Stengel actually used to call Yogi Mr. Berra and my assistant manager, which is it just kind of shows you the respect that Stengel had for Berra and, and just the knowledge of that he must have seen that Barrow was a student of the game and that he must have seen, he must, like, obviously he really had a lot of respect for him. And um, one thing that Casey Stengel did say about um, Yogi Berra that's kind of funny that I just wanted to share was that Casey Stengel once said, he'd fall on a sewer and come up with a gold watch, which um, which is just something, he, like, I guess Yogi, he didn't, he never really looked like a great athlete, but he always found a way to get the job done. He was, a, he was a clutch hitter. I mean, he was actually, one thing about Yogi, too, that was different than a lot of other hitters is he was, what do you call, a bad ball hitter. He kind of had the approach of see the ball, hit the ball, which I believe he said a few times. And usually he, like, and the one thing about Yogi, kind of like Joe DiMaggio, um, which is very impressive, um, is Yogi Berra, even though he was a bad ball hitter, he didn't really strike out a whole lot. I mean, I think he, I think one season he struck out like 12 times one season in his career, which is incredible. Uh, um, I'm not, I'm not sure which season it was, but I know there was one season that he only struck out like 12 times or 13 times or something like that. 
Um, but that's incredible for just the kind of hitter that he was, being a bad ball hitter. Vladimir Guerrero is another guy who was a bad ball hitter as well. He would hit it from his from his shoe tops, or he was he would hit the ball if it was really high. It didn't matter if he if he saw the ball and he liked it, he was going to swing. Um, so uh, also Yogi Berra, he was one of only four catchers to have a perfect fielding percentage in one season in 1958. And of course, fielding percentage is not really a statistic that people go by anymore, but um, if you never make an error in the field, that's pretty darn good, at least in my my opinion anyway. Uh, 1949, Yogi Berra played with a broken finger um, in part of a season, part of that season, um, and, and I guess he actually had to have one finger pushed outside of his catcher's mitt. And I believe, and I believe a lot of catchers after that started to that's, that became kind of common for catchers. Um, and one thing that I did kind of start noticing as I've uh, as I researched this was. Yogi Berra, um, the way he started his career, like he was always a really good hitter, kind of a lot like Jorge Posada in a lot of ways, and I maybe that's why Jorge and Yogi seem to have such a good relationship. Obviously, they were both very well liked, and they just probably got along very well. But at the same time, they their careers seemed to like Posada took him some time at catcher. Obviously, Posada when he first came up was a second baseman, but it took him some time to get better as a catcher, um, and. and just like Yogi Berra, like I said, with Bill Dickey uh, being a mentor for Yogi. Um, and anyways, uh, Yogi ended up becoming a manager. He played. He was a manager with the Mets for four seasons, and he was a manager with the Yankees for two and a half seasons. Um, of course, in 64, his first year as a manager, the Yankees went to the World Series, and they went, the Mets went to the World Series in 1973. Um, he never won the World Series with uh, either the Mets or the Yankees. Um, 1985... He was actually fired by George Steinbrenner, and that's when George, uh, that's when uh, Yogi Berra, anyway, he said he was never going to go back to Yankee Stadium. And of course, he ended up going back. Um, uh, one person that really uh, was influential in that, of course, was Susan Waldman, who is on the radio broadcast on WFAN uh, with John Sterling. She was trying to get George to bury the hatchet with Yogi. So they, they wanted them to meet and just kind of bury the hatchet, and they did, of course. Anyways, uh, uh, one I, one last quote I wanted to leave you with with Yogi Berra uh, was from Mel Ott. Mel Ott said about Yogi, he seemed to be doing everything wrong, yet everything came out right. He stopped everything behind the plate and hit everything in front of it. And another Yankee legend, of course, is Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter, of course, played from 1995 to 2014, parts of 20 seasons, um, in my opinion. I, th- I think it's hard to kind of put Derek Jeter it's hard to put really anybody in the in, in the group of the five legends that I already mentioned of Yogi Berra, Lou Gehrig, um, uh, Babe Ruth, Mickey Mano, and Joe DiMaggio but if there's anybody in that fits there it's Derek Jeter. Um, of course there is Mariano Rivera, Whitey Ford, Ron Guidry but at the same time I, I it's, it's kind of for me it's kind of hard I, I, I kind of have a hard time putting a pitcher in there because for it's, it's almost like it's almost like you have to kind of, um, the players that play every single day, it's a little bit harder for a pitcher to be in there. Moving on, Derek Jeter, of course, he had a dream of being a Yankee shortstop when he was like seven years old, um, and obviously he ended up fulfilling that. Um, and Derek Jeter was the first-round draft pick, um, sixth overall. Uh, he was drafted out of Kalamazoo Central High School. Of course, he he had he was committed for Mich- to go to Michigan University, um, but of course, since he was drafted by the Yankees, you know, which I guess they didn't really expect at that time, uh, obviously, I'm sure he hoped, but anyways, 
uh, in his first full season in professional baseball, he made 56 errors in his first year in the rookie league, Gulf Coast League. Um, uh, so th- that was the toughest year again. And kind of like uh, Mickey Mantle and Yogi Berra, um, they also kind of struggled a little bit early on in their professional careers um, before they got to the majors. He uh, he ended up becoming the 1994 minor league player of the year. And on May 24th, 1995, Jeter, of course, made his major league debut in Seattle at the Kingdom. Got his first hit May 30th of 1995. His first, the first game he played, he actually was hitless. But the the first game he got a hit was May 30th, 1995. Got a leadoff single in the sixth inning off of Tim Belcher, right-handed pitcher. Um, he was two for three in the game with a walk. He batted ninth as well, played shortstop. Um, and uh, then he ended up going down. And the Yankees did end up bringing him. I, I, he wasn't on the roster for the playoffs in 95, but I believe they were able to bring him along just to kind of see the atmosphere of being in the playoffs and stuff like that, which I'm sure really helped. Um, 1996, he was the rookie of the year with the Yankees. In spring training, they actually had Tony Fernandez, but Tony Fernandez, who was a veteran shortstop at the time, um, and he was a very good shortstop, but and I, I guess the Yankees had envisioned him being the everyday shortstop, but he got hurt. And he was going to miss a lot of time, so they were kind of stuck with Derek Jeter, who had not had the greatest of spring trainings. So they weren't sure how Jeter was going to be. Um, of course, he ended up going on to win the Rookie of the Year in '96, um, and of course he uh, he helped the Yankees win four World Series titles in his first five seasons of his career. Um, Jeter, even though he was a young player, it didn't and never really he never really ever seemed like a rookie. He, he, he kind of conducted himself as a veteran and a leader and he just he did th- he did everything really the right way like he he, he was kind of had that Joe DiMaggio kind of way about him like this Joe DiMaggio Lou Gehrig kind of way like he where he he was very professional um and yet he wanted to learn he wanted to be the best and he just wanted to learn from all the veterans and and he just did things the right way um but anyways from 1996 to 2000 in Derek Jeter's career Derek Jeter had 996 hits, which was the most hits um, of anybody uh, in baseball at that time from 96 to 2000. Um, he was the third Yankee with three straight 200-hit seasons. The only other two Yankees that did that was Lou Gehrig from 1927 to 1928 and Don Mattingly from 1984 to 1986. And actually, another thing about uh, Jeter, um, there, was th- there was only two other players that had had more hits than Derek Jeter by the age of 26 years old, and those two players were Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle. So that's that's a pretty great class to be a part of. Um, uh, also, Derek Jeter was the first player to win an All-Star Game MVP and a World Series MVP in 2000. Um, Derek Jeter, of course, part of 20 years in his career. He had 3,465 hits, a 310 batting average. He had a 377 on base percentage. He had a 115 on base plus lucking adjusted. He had um, 260 home runs in his career and a 360 and 368 stolen bases as well in his career. Of course, he was not really a, a power hitter. He, um, he was more more of a leadoff type guy, just being a table setter, getting on base. Um, he was he made it to 14 All Star games. Um, won five gold gloves in his career. He was really kind of better than they gave them credit. Of course, as he got older, his defense did decline a little bit more. Um, but, I mean, he played until he was 40 years old, too. So, 
Um, however, uh, June 3rd, 2003, like I said, Jeter never really seemed like a rookie. And he always kind of, he, he, he always had, he was always a really good leader on the Yankees, even when he was young. Um, June 3rd, 2003, the Yankees made it official. They made him captain of the Yankees. Um, again, uh, he, he was, um, he he was actually one. There was only one year that he was that he came in second place in the Most Valuable Player award. Was in 2006 to Justin Morneau. Um, that year he played 154 games. He had 14 home runs, 97 RBIs. He had a 3.43 batting average, 34 stolen bases, and a 132 on base plus slugging adjusted. And by then he was already. I think he was like 32 years old by then. So. Um, Jeter had one of his best seasons of his career, 1999, which 1999 is kind of um, kind of like last year. I guess they say that 1999 the balls were juiced, and if you look at a lot of the, the offensive numbers across the league, a lot of the um, offensive numbers were a lot higher than usual. Um, but anyways, that year was also one of his better years as well. I think he was third in the MVP. Um, voting that year as well. I, uh, Juan Gonzalez, outfielder for Texas, won the MVP that year. Um, but anyways, Derek Jeter played 158 games that year, had 24 home runs, which was the most of his career, 102 RBIs, 349 batting average, 19 stolen bases, 153 on-base plus slugging adjusted, which is well above average. Um, and he led the league with a with 219 hits as well. Um, so the Derek Derek, uh, the, 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 like just the fact that Derek Jeter had 24 home runs kind of tells you that there was something up with the baseballs that year as well because Jeter was not really a power hitter. Of course, he was younger as well. But um, anyways, another one of his better years was, um, was, was 10 years after that in 2009, which is kind of surprising if you think about it because he was already in his, in his late 30s, I think, by that time. Um, but he, had, he was actually second in MVP, I think, he was second or third in MVP in 2009, but that's another year that he uh, was one of his best seasons. He played 153 games in 2009. He had 15 home runs, 66 RBIs, uh, 334 batting average, 30 stolen bases, and 125 on-base plus looking adjusted. Again, well above average um, offensively. Uh, postseason career, his batting average, um, and he obviously was in the postseason a lot. Um, they played a lot of games, and a lot of that is because, you know, there's a lot more rounds and a lot, lot more postseason rounds with the division series, league championship series, and world series. Um, but he hit 308 in his entire postseason career, uh, 374 on base percentage, 20 home runs, um, 18 stolen bases, and 200 hits. And in the world series, Derek Jeter was even better. He had a 321 batting average in the in every in all world series games, 384 on base percentage, and three home runs and nine RBIs. Um, the three home runs that he hit. Uh, one home run was Game Four of the 2001 World Series, Mr. November, the Mr. November game where he had the walk-off home run in Game Four of the World Series against the Diamondbacks. Um, then there was the Subway Series in 2000, Game Four. He had a leadoff home run off of Bobby Jones, right-handed pitcher, and Game Five he had a game-tying home run in the sixth inning with one out off of Al Leiter. And of course, the Yankees ended up going on to win um, to win that series against the Mets. Uh, so, anyways, like I said, Dirk Jeter, he's just he was a phenomenal player and definitely a Yankee legend. I mean, there's there's a lot of other Yankee legends, like Reggie Jackson's another guy, but Reggie Jackson wasn't a homegrown Yankee. I mean, in, in, in my opinion, I, I feel like they should probably have played more than five seasons, but that's just my opinion. Again, like I said, these top five lists are subjective, 
But in my opinion, um, these are the the best of the best. Before I rank the top five Yankee legends, I just wanted to mention that the historic Pinstripe Show is a proud member of the 4041 Media family with other podcasts such as Movie Theater Time Machine, Honest Fitness Talk with your trainer Nick, Psych Your Crime, Free Your Geek, and there's other streamers as well. And for more information on the 4041 Media family, you can go to www.4041media.com. And back to the show. So the top five Yankee legends in Yankees history, in my opinion, are Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Yogi Berra, Mickey Mantle, and Joe DiMaggio. And I kind of had a hard time with this list because I feel like you can kind of go, there's a lot of different directions you can go. I did kind of toy around with putting Derek Jeter in there, but I feel like these are the best of the best. Um, it's kind of hard, like I said, it's kind of hard for anybody really to, to beat these guys. Ruth, Garrick, DiMaggio, Mera, Mantle, um, the, the, those, the, like they really kind of set the bar. I believe Ruth was the best um, because, you know, he, he really like, he was the first superstar, like I said before, um, and basically in baseball history, and obviously just how great he was as a pitcher with the Yankees. Um, he was just such a great hitter, especially for his day. He was so much better than any other player. But however, for top five Yankee legends, I feel like it's not just about ability. It's a little bit more about how they're remembered. So Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Yogi Berra, Mickey Mantle, and Joe DiMaggio. And of course, honorable mention to Derek Jeter. And there's a whole lot of other great Yankee legends out there. The Yankees have been lucky to have so many great players playing for them. So that's my top five. What's your top five Yankee legends in Yankees history? Feel free to email the show at historicpinstripes at gmail.com. Feel free to uh, send us a tweet at historicnyy. Uh, you can also feel free to comment on Facebook or Instagram. The Instagram is at Historic Pinstripes. And again, thank you everyone for listening to the show. Stay tuned for more episodes um, coming out this week. And as always, go Yankees! <laughs> <laughs>